Uh, this morning, we're continuing on in Matthew's gospel. Uh, we are in chapter five. We're in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. So this is this, uh, th- this scope of teaching that Jesus is, his disciples are before him, the crowds are pressing in around him, and he starts to interpret the Old Testament for them in ways that are correct, but haven't been heard in quite some time. He goes deeper to, uh, to the heart of God, so he's not just concerned with the exterior way of life, but Jesus is, he is uh, fiercely and ferociously concerned with the posture of our hearts, our interior lives, because it's from our hearts that our entire life emanates. We live from our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth does what? Speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the the life is lived. Jesus is touching on anger this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. It's on page 760 in the Black Bibles. If you just want to grab a Bible, if you don't own one, that Bible now belongs to you. It's our gift to you. No strings attached. Take it, please. Interact with it, particularly Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those chapters. Um, This is God's word. Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. He's reaching back to the uh, 10 commandments here. You shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment or brother without cause will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel. And whoever says you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There are priorities here. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, so truly Jesus says to them and to us, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. Jesus is saying here, the root of murder is anger. He's saying the, the seed of murder is anger. Consider the cultural moment in Israel at this time. The Romans are ruling over, they're an occupying nation, ruling over the people of Israel in Jerusalem. They're annoyed with the Israelites. They see the Israelites as, um, they, they see them as a pain. They, uh, they're ruling over them by force. And because the, the Israelites are recipients of this Roman rule, they are angry as well. Uh, some of their own have even turned their backs on their fellow brothers and sisters. Some Israelites have, and now are working for the Romans as tax collectors. So the Romans are also oppressing the people of Israel by exerting tax, exacting taxes from them. And the author of this gospel that we just read is one of those tax collectors, Matthew. The Israelites, they're resisting the Romans. There are some people within their nation who are well-known called zealots. Zealots are looking for the Israelites to kind of power up and posture up and, and essentially come against Rome and revolt. While they're really intense, 
the majority of the Israelites are wanting that. They're maybe just not willing to shed blood over it at the moment. And the common understanding among the Israelites is they're looking for a warrior king who will deliver them, a Messiah who is a warrior, who will deliver them by force from the Romans. Women and children are marginalized and largely voiceless. The people of Israel are coming into the temple. They're traveling to the temple to offer sacrifices. They're not bringing their animals because that would probably be too much work. And so they're counting on the fact that they can come into the temple courts and they can purchase animals without blemish to then offer as sacrifices, but they're being extorted by those who are there selling the animals. They're being gouged by them. Criminals are being crucified in the open and along the roads by the Romans for everyone to see. Society is brutal. People were angry. Doesn't matter what side you're on because injustice and cruelty and abuse is rampant. Today, it's not hard for us to make the argument that anger is a dominating emotion in our culture as well and the time that we live in. Outrage is intense right now. We have, we've coined a phrase. It's the age of outrage. Outrage culture. Outrage, a sense of rage coming out. That's the etymology of the word. That's what it means. It's coming out of us. It's the capital by which news outlets buy our attention. A teenager on his bike on Wednesday, he flipped me off the other day as I was, he had a green light, I had a green light, I was turning right and I turned into the intersection before seeing him come across. I was still quite a ways from him, but instantly without even a thought, he just gave me the bird and just like mean mugged me in that moment. Anger runs rampant in our homes, in our homes in our schools, in our playgrounds, in our businesses, in our government. It's everywhere. And anger is evidenced through irritability. It's evidenced through rage. It's evidenced through criticism. It's evidenced through defensiveness, unforgiveness, bitterness. I'll go on. Contempt, slander, indifference. How big is this one right now? Relational cutoff. People are just being cut off for certain views that they hold. And anger does not always make us rage either. It also makes us go inside of ourselves. Anger also makes us go inside of ourselves and grow ice cold, cutting people off, growing indifferent. Jesus speaks in certain terms here. Anger is the little brother of murder. Anger is the little brother of murder. I've got five points this morning. Last week I had two. I've got five this week, but they'll be brief, I promise. Um, here, is, here is kind of where we're going this morning. I'm just gonna line them up for you. They'll be on the screen as well. Murder and anger are siblings in the same family. That's my first point. My second point, we'll get into some definitions. And so we'll look at what anger is and we'll look at what murder is as well. Um, my third will be uh, asking the question, is God angry? Does he harbor anger? Does he um, execute anger? Uh, my fourth point is anger is, you don't have to write these down. They'll be up on the screen in a bit, but anger is pressurized and on the move. It's always looking for an outlet. And then the last point is, is just a question around what do I do with it? 
What do I do with my anger? Okay, all right, I got a problem. (laughs) It's there. It's in my home. It's in my soul. It's in me. What do I do with it? First point, murder and anger are siblings in the same family, according to Jesus. Murder begins as anger in the heart, according to his words. You've heard it said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's appealing to the sixth of the Ten Commandments there. And then he says, but I say to you, we touched on this a little bit last week, Jesus is coming in saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, what this means shorthand is that as Jesus is teaching and, and helping to interpret the Old Testament, he is speaking as God. But I say to you, he's speaking with authority here. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then essentially, if not dealt with there, it'll come out through insults. And if not dealt with there, it'll come out in ways that only hell can deal with. Anger within us, it builds when it's not dealt with. And so the severity by which it needs to be addressed, it progresses. Unrighteous anger has consequences. Notice the phrase that I just used. I use the adjective unrighteous next to the noun anger. Unrighteous anger. So I hope the question is starting to come into your mind even now. Like, is there a such thing as righteous anger? Is that a thing? Yes, it is. There is a such thing as righteous anger, and it originates with God. Righteous anger originates with God. We go quickly, you and I go quickly astray in our anger. God does not. He does not. Here's my second point. What is anger? What is murder? Trying to bring some definitions here. If you just look up the definition of anger in your dictionary, it's going to describe anger generically. It says this, anger is a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. Anger is a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. I think uh, this, as I was just kind of wrestling through it, trying to understand anger, this definition is way too humanistic in its, in its scope. Uh, it's not very helpful, actually, in my view. Because, why? Because it only paints anger in the negative, and it doesn't assign anger a moral value. I think that's a problem. Anger is always related to moral value judgments that we make. Anger is always related to moral value judgments that you and I make. So, for example, the kid on the bike who flipped me off on Wednesday. He was angry, apparently. Why? Because he had, in that moment, made a value judgment. He thought that I was being careless and that I was endangering him. And right out of that moral value judgment came the overflow of the heart. But I was angry right after that as well, because as I'm going, sorry, 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 with my hand, literally with my hand up, like I, you can't confuse my digits on my hand. I've got five of them up, turned a different way towards him. And I'm saying, sorry, in that moment, like I get through the intersection and then I feel anger in that moment. Why? Because I felt misunderstood. I felt condemned. I felt disrespected and I felt judged. We both felt anger and our anger came from our moral judgments. Here's how a counselor named David Paulison defines anger. I think this is so helpful. Ready? I'm against that. Anger. What is anger? I'm against that. 
He goes on to say, and to kind of bring some color to this, anger is an active stance that we take to oppose something that we see as both important and wrong. Anger is an active stance we take to oppose something we assess as both important and wrong. We notice something, we size that thing up, and then we say, it matters and it's not right. Now, our assessment may be wrong. We may be angry at something that matters to us, but isn't just. And we say it's not right. And then we fight out of a sense of injustice. We can go off the rails in a million different directions in how we let our anger out. But at its, at its core, that is what anger is saying. We're sizing something up, saying that it matters and that it's not right. Now, what is murder? Murder is the premeditated ending of another person's life. That's what murder is. It's the premeditated ending of another person's life. Uh, murder is the fruit, uh, it's, the, it's the fruit of intense anger and malice. Anyone who has ever murdered has anger somewhere in the core there. It's different and it can be differentiated than manslaughter. Manslaughter is the ending of a person's life through negligence and carelessness. And in our own society, we have all kinds of different degrees of murder, premeditation. We also have different degrees of manslaughter. How negligent were they? Jesus is saying, in, in essence, this. Ungodly anger is, ungodly anger is a serious flaw in our character. Ungodly anger is a serious, whether we're stewing or whether we're raging, ungodly anger is a serious flaw in our character and it's the seed of murder. It's the seed of murder. Here's my third point. Okay, is God angry? Yes, he is. But I thought he was a God of, he says he's love. Yes, he is a God of love. And his anger emanates from the intensity of his love as he looks objectively and with holiness at what is wrong in the world. And he says, that is not right. He actively opposes everything which is both important and wrong. Sometimes God does so through gentle correction. Sometimes through his active wrath. We're so prone to, we're very prone. Just the moment I mention wrath, we've got all kinds of kind of definitions going and the majority of them are, prob, are, are likely calculated from comparing human wrath to God's wrath and judging him on the basis of human wrath and how sideways human wrath comes out, how unjustly human wrath comes out. We often do injustice while holding a strong sense of justice. So we look at it, we objectively say, that's not right. And then the way that we approach it is like sideways and ungodly and unrighteous. So like a child wanders off and we find said child and we're harsh with them in the moment. We have a sense of justice. We have a sense of what is right. I need to find my child. We're, 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 we're concerned with that. But then when the child comes back into our, chair, our care, then we turn on them and they become the object of a fear-gripped explosion. Is it not possible to both find our child and constructively teach our child? Yes, but we first have to be aware of ourselves. 
what's going on within us, how it's likely to come out sideways. We need self-understanding. We also need an understanding of who God is and how he operates in his world. God works from flawless, he works rather flawless justice from the perfect motive of justice. The way that his justice comes out is never sideways. It's never corrupt. It's never unrighteous. Borrowing again, and I'm going to be borrowing again from David Paulison. Actually, I'll just hold this up. If This book is called Good and Angry um, by David Paulison. If you, uh, if you are just want to know more about like tracing your anger down, how do I, if you um, assess, self-assess and go, man, I've, I've got some issues that I want to work on. It's coming out sideways in the home. This book, Good and Angry, bright red cover, you can find it on Amazon, is a really, really helpful read to help you just trace it down. I'm, I'm borrowing pretty heavily from him this morning. This is, uh, uh, th- this is what he kind of gets to, and I've reworded it with some of my own language. But uh, a man would come to, um, to Jesus, and he would address Jesus, by, and he would say, good teacher, and then he'd go on to ask a question. And then Jesus kind of stops. Whoa, whoa, you lost me at good teacher. What do you mean? No one but God is good. Jesus says there's only one who is good. And so he's trying to kind of sift where this guy is coming from with this question. Is this man purporting to believe that Jesus is God or is Messiah or is he um, just being careless with his language? Jesus, he knows that he himself is the son of God. He knows that he is, that, that the father is good, the spirit is good. There's only one who is truly good, God Pallison goes on to say, every person in scripture has feet of clay. Moses lost his temper and he actually murdered an Egyptian. His disciples around Jesus, they would argue about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven and they would be filled with strife and anger towards one another. A couple of guys even tried to call down fire from heaven to judge a few cities that didn't receive them. They're, they're operating in some hostility. Peter, uh, right before Jesus's arrest and execution, rashly draws his sword, tries to take off a guy's head, misses and gets his ear. Like that's what's going on within people all over the pages of scripture. Yet we see in Jesus's Bible, we talked about this last week, the Old Testament is Jesus's Bible, that the one who is good God, hear me here, also happens to be the best known angry person in all of history and literature. I'll say it again. The one who is good God also happens to be the best known angry person in all of history and literature. No collection of writings ever tells more about a person's anger than the Bible. And the person who holds that anger is God himself. He's angry and indignant at sin. He's angry and indignant at our rebellion, which harms people and obscures his goodness. If you're willing to look objectively at how he exerts his anger and his wrath in the Bible, it's always consistent. Think about this. His anger comes slow. He's long-tempered. He, he, he repeatedly calls himself slow to anger. He gives warning after warning after warning after warning to people in the scriptures. He's consistently extending mercy. His, his anger is never irritable or irrational. His anger is never selfish. It's not ever moody or capricious like ours, never reckless. David, um, 
the king of Israel wrote in Psalm 145, eight and nine, it'll be on the screen. The Lord is gracious and merciful. What? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And then Jesus, uh, in Luke's telling of the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke 6, 35 and 36 would say, but love your enemies. Jesus is speaking here. Love your enemies, do good, and lend even to them, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. That's shorthand for you'll be like your dad. For he is, how is he? He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, And then Jesus says something really curious here. We sang it in the last song. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Your mercy is more. Jesus is calling and commanding us to extend, to execute mercy, even as our father is merciful. David Pallison, in this book, Good and Angry, he goes on to say, don't let any preconceived Uh, preconceptions rather that you have about the wrath of God keep you from stopping to examine the inner logic of how anger works. His anger always arises for a good reason. It's never a fit, never a spasm, never a bad hair day. It's never brooding hostility, just waiting to explode on an innocent, well-meaning bystander who happened to get caught in the crossfire. That's us, not him. The causes are clearly identified and they make perfect sense when you stop, listen, and think about it. So in your Old Testaments, go to the book of Judges, if you would, real quick. I'm just gonna take us on a really, a brief survey. It's the, I believe, uh, the, the seventh book of the Old Testament, right after Joshua, right at the beginning in chapter two, Judges chapter two starting in verses 11 through 19. Just gonna, we're just gonna look at God's character and we're gonna look at how the people of Israel responded to him. Judges 2, 11 through 19. And I'm just kind of pulling this up off of the page, but you'll get the picture here. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. These are the gods of the nations around them. The God was Baal. And they abandoned, so Israel abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. And what did God do? He had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. So he rescued them out of the land of Egypt, but they had abandoned him. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. What this means is that they submitted to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, again there, they abandoned him and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. That's the means of some of their worship. So the anger of the Lord, what? Was kindled against Israel, and here come the consequences. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had, what? Warned. And as the Lord had what? Sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. They're in, some, they're in a posture of repentance here. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them, the people of Israel, out of the hands of those who plundered them. 
What is God doing? He's extending mercy here. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Again, submitting to the gods of the surrounding nations. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord before them and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was what? Moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the rhythm? There's warning. There's a calling to himself. There's, well, actually there's rescue. There's provision. Then there's warning. There's falling away. There's warning, falling away, warning, falling away. Okay, it's gonna come to pass. Hot stove, don't touch it. That's what's happening among the people of Israel here. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Truly, we can trust the anger of God. His, his anger is righteous. He sees rebellion. He sees injustice. He sees evil. And he says, what? I'm against that. His judgments are just. We too, as his people created in the image of God, we have, compa- we have capacity to, to judge injustice and to judge evil. And from hearts that are being renewed back into the image of our creator, we can be angry and not sin. In fact, one of Jesus's apostles, a man named Paul, would give a command to a church in modern day Turkey, this church that was in the ancient city of Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, 26, he'd say, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Here's my fourth point. Anger is pressurized and on the move. Anger is pressurized within us. It's on the move. No matter what variety, anger is always looking for an outlet. It's always looking for a way out of us. That's what Paul is drawing attention to when he tells the church in Ephesus to be angry, but not let the sun go down on that anger. When we let our anger stew, when we let it stew within us, Here's what happens. It gives the devil an opportunity, it gives the evil one an opportunity to cultivate bitterness within us, to cultivate relational cutoff, emotional shutdown, explosions of rage, everything in between. All of humanity's ungodly anger brings harm. It's like a downed power line charged with electricity and fire, but still charged. And so it's whipping about and setting everything it touches on fire. That's what our ungodly anger is like. It's pressurized and on the move. Letting our anger that is ungodly, any kind of anger actually, letting our anger steep and stew is dangerous to our own souls. Giving safe harbor to anger, it's danger to our own souls and it's, danger to, it's dangerous to the people around us. Where wine gets better with age, anger typically gets bigger with age. It doesn't go away. The stuff, 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 stuff explode, 
Like there's a reason it explodes because it's always on the move. God wants us to deal with our anger quickly and in ways that are wise and just, in ways that reflect his work in us. Anger is too powerful for us to ignore, to just put off to the side. I've got an anger problem or I've always had a temper. My daddy had a temper. It's too powerful to ignore. It's like fire. Look at the progression of anger that Jesus draws our attention to in Matthew chapter five. He draws our attention to this progression where he says, uh, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What he's doing here is he's giving his hearers tangible checkpoints to check the anger within us and to submit their ways or our ways to his ways. And so he starts out with just saying, anger. This could be representative of just simply inward anger. Inward anger would be an injustice or perceived wrong that's harbored within us. We haven't yet let it out. We haven't let it out on our face. It hasn't come out through our our hands or our bodies or our tone of voice, but it's inward. You ever have revenge fantasies? Nobody's nodding at me. I do. You're brushing your teeth in the morning and you're giving that person the what for? That's a revenge fantasy. And it's perfect, it's a perfect example of inward anger. So is self-criticism and self-loathing. We have failed our broken our own standards. And so what do we do? We turn on ourselves in anger. It leads typically to outward insults. And this one's pretty obvious. That person's such a, I can't believe they would. Oh, those are examples of those statements have anger at the root. Pride is there mixed in too. We don't have to differentiate. Pride typically leads people, people to anger, actually, lashing out at the people around them who challenge them. Inward anger leading to outward insults, leading to soul-killing contempt and malice. This sort of unchecked anger within our own hearts and souls leads us in directions that we truly don't want. Now, we feel good in the moment. We feel good as we're exercising it. We feel good as there's an outlet, but we know and other people know they're shameful. That's why when we get carried away in our anger, we'll often say things like, that's not me. We'll explain it away. People generally know it. Doesn't mean Christian, non-Christian, created in the image of God, common grace. People generally know when we're working with contempt and when people are working with malice, that it's wrong. Contempt is looking down on a person with scorn. We're seeing them as vile. We're seeing them as worthless. Malice is, it's coming with that desire to do a person harm. We want them to suffer. It feels good to us when other people suffer. Malice is the fruit of anger. So has this ever come out of your mouth? It has mine. They deserved it. I'm glad. They got what they had coming. There's malice in that. Where where we are taking some joy in another person's suffering or downfall, whether it's by their own hand, whether they do deserve it in the eyes of God or not. We are not their judge. Soul-killing contempt and malice will lead to person-killing, body-killing murder. When we're in the place of malice, 
When we're harboring contempt, when we're harboring hatred of another person, we may be closer to violence than we're willing to admit. Again, back to my first point, murder and anger, they're siblings in the same family. Unrighteous anger in all of its forms opposes community, opposes friendship, works against intimacy, and divides and destroys. It's to be given no safe quarter by the people of God. Unrighteous anger is to be given no safe quarter by the people of God. Now, last point, what do I do with it? What do I do with my anger? All right, like some of these things that you've named, they're in me too. In this text, Jesus gives his people general principles here. He'll say in verse 24, or verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so he's speaking in the moment of, uh, of old covenant worship. He's speaking to Israelites. All has not yet been accomplished through his, his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. They're still under the sacrificial system when he is speaking to them in this moment. And so he's speaking to these Old Testament worshipers saying, if you're offering the gift at the altar at the temple and remember that your brother has something against you, you've likely wronged them and they have something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There's a priority in worship here. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Otherwise, that's going to unwind. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge will then hand you over to the guard or to the bailiff, and then you're going to be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If you're harboring your anger here, it is going to cons consistently imprison you. It is going to consistently punish you. If we remember, we acknowledge, we notice that we're a perpetrator of any wrong to a person, we go to them. What this means is that we, as the people of God, have to like, do some work to see ourselves soberly and to take initiative. Sanity has deep awareness, you guys. Our sanity has deep awareness. Harbored anger, it actually operates in a sort of madness where it's easy for us to overlook, tr overlook truth and justify. In the moment of anger, how, how often do you just justify your anger? You look for all of the reasons why that anger was actually appropriate. We, we lose our minds in our anger. Godly is the person willing to acknowledge fault. Godly is the person willing to acknowledge fault. By God's grace, you and I can start by nourishing hearts that are willing to own wrongdoing on our part. And so the question is, are you, are you a person who is willing to own wrongdoing? Are you, are you willing to say, I'm sorry? Please forgive me. Without, just, without buts on the end of that sentence, Please forgive me. I have been wrong. The way I looked at you, the way I spoke at you, the things I said to you, the things I did to you behind your back, in front of your face, wherever it is, are you willing to acknowledge fault? The kind of relief that comes through acknowledgement of fault is so good. The kind of relief that comes through apology, through genuine repentance before people we have hurt is so good and it's so good for two parties. It can be really hard to initiate an apology. It requires humility. 
but the benefit of carrying our anger just is not worth the expense. An apology for wrong done, it not only frees us, but it also brings freedom to the person that we have hurt. Notice in verse 23 that it's the person who has done wrong that Jesus is instructing. Hang with me here. It's the person who we have done wrong with, wrong to, that Jesus is instructing us to go to. We've brought the harm, we bring the apology. When we bring the harm, we bring the apology. Maybe the person has wronged us and now we're, we're not reconciled. What do we do? We seek wisdom, we seek Christ-centered counsel, and we seek to love our enemies in wise and noble ways. Hear me on that. Christ-centered counsel, wisdom, and we seek to love our enemies in wise and noble ways. That doesn't mean we get off the hook for loving our enemies. That's always the call. But we may not get reconciliation. Relationship with a person who has harmed us may not be on the table at all. But we always move toward forgiveness. We always are moving towards forgiveness within our own spirit. Sanity has deep awareness and says, Jesus, this teaching is hard. It feels impossible at times to to trace my anger all the way down, to deal with the, the root of my anger. I can't even keep these standards. I've broken these standards 150 times in the last 10 years. If these are the standards, then who can be saved? In profound ways, Jesus' standards and his way, they drive us straight to the end of ourselves. And as they drive us to the end of ourselves, they drive us right into a deep ocean of our own need. We're not able to rescue ourselves from that ocean of need. But God, but one has come who is offering rescue And he extends just like he would to the Israelites as they groaned before him, as they saw their own folly and sin before him and cried out to him. He heard them. He gives us mercy that we don't merit. He extends to us mercy we don't merit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we turn and we see Jesus's mercy to us, not just for our anger, but for every need we have, every rebellion we've ever participated in, we find our anger subsiding in light of Jesus's glorious mercy freely given to us. Here's my last sentence. The foundation for remedying our anger. Notice I'm saying the foundation. It's not all of the work. It's the foundation of the work. The foundation for remedying our anger is focusing on the mercy that we have received in Christ. That's where it begins. And we don't move on from it, we work from it. Does that make sense? May God continue to extend mercy to his people and help us use anger, use 
I'm against that to work justice in his world, equity in his world. Amen. Father, we, we need your help. Every single week we come together, we hear from your word. These teachings are too great for us. They feel impossible. But the point of religion says we've got to climb ourselves, climb our way up to you. That's religion in a worldly sense. But the gospel has a totally different story that God has come to us. And so we thank you. As we see you, as we take hold of the mercy and focus on it that you have extended to us, pray that you would free your church from anger and that you would help us deal with our anger where it comes up because it will continue to try to bubble and go on the move. You help us to deal with it in ways that are constructive and righteous, in ways that actually bring healing, not more fracture. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You've seen some of the slides up on the screen this morning. Um, we're interacting for about five minutes or so. I'll set a timer this morning, about five minutes, some Q&R question and response. Is this text, any questions you have from this text, uh, from this passage, are they causing you to uh, just want to ask questions, look for clarity, look for some more application? I'll take a few uh, questions. If we, as soon as we don't have any or that five minutes is up, I will, uh, we'll move on into a time of communion and, and song this morning. One last thing. I do feel a sense of pressure to like have an answer for the question, but I'm actively trying to resist that. If I don't have a good answer or it's just too much for the moment, I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say, I can't get to it right now. Come, let's have a conversation. Let's move it offline. Do we have any questions? Any questions this morning? No questions. Yes. 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 That is such a good question. My mind is kind of like, like trying to orient itself to the question right now. Ask that question. I'm not going to attempt to answer it right now. It has shifted. It has been absorbed in some new ways. But it's still present against sin in the world. There's just a new object now that absorbs the wrath of God, Jesus Christ. But all over the Old Testament, I will say this, or all over the New Testament, rather, the Apostle Paul in particular, but also Peter in their writings are saying, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. On account of God, the wrath, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And so there is still judgment to come. His anger still does burn hot. That's sin and injustice. Anybody else? We'll just take them live if you have one. You guys are shy via text message and via email. I thought that would give some of the more quiet folks in the room an opportunity to send in questions. Do that. I saw a hand go up over here. The anger between, uh, the difference between anger and bitterness and doesn't, doesn't really matter. I think 
bitterness in my understanding is an out, outworking of anger. Anger is kind of like the pot. Bitterness is one of the different forms that that anger takes out. And bitterness in particular is holding something against another person. It's the refusal to forgive. Anybody else? Let's go another minute or two. This should hit all of us to some degree, this text, topic. Joe. Um, I, I think when we're dealing, I, you have to be careful about definitions. Righteous as pleasing to God. Um, from his people, if, if they're not a part of his people, potentially no, but there is something called common grace. That, and so there is an echo of Eden. There's a remnant of our, uh, uh, we're a people who, have, who are created in the image of God. And so people do have a general moral compass. And so there are people in the world who are working for causes of justice. They're standing against war. They're standing against oppression. They're standing against uh, things that they're, they're essentially holding back evil in the world and working good for common people. And that's a part of common grace. And so I think in human terms, you could say that it is, it is righteous. And yet the category of righteousness Righteousness that is pleasing to God can only be, um, can, it, we can only please God through, through a, a life that is in union with his son, ultimately. So even people who do good by common grace in the world still may be children of wrath. They're operating under common grace. We see this in the medical field. We see this in human rights. We see this in a lot of different fields. I wanna pray. Father, um, as we take communion this morning, uh, help us to understand how to categorize this. What do we do with it? Give us wisdom as a people to be a people who move in for the sake of peacekeeping, for the, peace, for the sake of peacemaking. That we're a people who actively oppose evil and harm. Would you give us courage? Would you give us strength? Would you give us resources? In Jesus' name, amen.